y'all. Welcome to Syracuse Speaks, the view from the AHL, a Syracuse Crunch-centric podcast. I'm your host, Alex Ackerman. Let's get started. All right, and we are here with Patrick Williams, who is joining us yet again. He was on a little bit ago, right when the league was kind of getting started, and now that we're almost, I think we're at the quarter way mark or the third way mark, one of the two, which seems amazing. Uh, I figured it was time to have him back on. So, Patrick, how are you? Uh, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a start. <laughs> um, so, yeah, let's let's get started with a little bit of a self care question. This came from <laughs> one of my Twitter followers over on Sinbin Crunch. I feel like this has to be some kind of an inside joke, but. I, I don't know. They wanted to know what you had for breakfast this morning. What did I have for breakfast? Oh, I had oatmeal. Fantastic. Uh, and a smoothie and tea. Solid answer. Lots so, of fiber there. Some good nutrients. I like it. So there's the answer for your uh, for your questioner. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from, but um, I hope that they are happy with your answer. It's... Uh, I think an NHL team would approve of my uh, breakfast choices. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's no chicken and pasta, but for breakfast, <laughs> I think I think you're good. There you go. <laughs> All right. Speaking of hockey, which is kind of why we're here today, um, you know, the AHL is about a quarter in to this regular season, which again seems both strange to say on March 9th, but also just really weird in general. So what have been your overall impressions of the play in the league so far this season? Well, my first impression is we're, like you said, about a quarter to a third of the way through. And, uh, I mean, there have been some hiccups with uh, COVID-19, but for the most part, uh, there hasn't been any major obstacles in that regard. And I think for the league, for all the 28 teams that are playing, that that's a huge, that's a huge step forward. And I think that's, created a lot of optimism around the league that uh, they found a recipe and a, a formula that can work here to both manage their situation from a safety standpoint and also keep the hockey business going. So uh, I think that's the big success for the league right now. And then from a play standpoint, I guess my answer to that would be, it depends who you're watching. Um, some clubs, they look fantastic. They look like uh, they're in mid-season form. They have really deep rosters, a good mix of veterans and prospects. I'm kind of thinking of Henderson, uh, San Diego would fit that bill. A few other clubs, Lehigh Valley in the East, Hershey. Uh, and then there are some other teams that uh, look pretty. They're in a little bit uh, dire straits right now, especially some of the clubs that have lost some talent back to the CHL or have been hit extra hard, depending on their roster makeup with the NHL taxi squad. So um, I think to some extent, that's why we're seeing the standings kind of all over the place right now. We're seeing some blowouts. I mean, Chicago's put up 10 goals one game, and then a couple games later, they put up eight goals. So I think the talent level and the uh, the overall parity of the league right now are a little bit a little bit off kilter from, from your more traditional AHL type of season. This is kind of off topic, but you brought up Henderson. How amazing is it that we even have teams like Henderson and then Palm Springs coming in 
in a season or two. I've kind of lost track of where that particular thing is, especially with the pandemic going on. But how crazy is it as someone who's been following this league for a little while and who has seen, you know, the cities that have AHL teams or had AHL teams, how crazy is it to see those kinds of cities getting into this league? It's if you'd ever told me way back when that the AHL would have a presence in Las Vegas, I would have really had to question you <laughs> or Palm Springs for that matter. I mean, just not your typical traditionally not your typical hockey markets to start with. And certainly not uh, the American Hockey League. Uh, you know, the AHL only reached the West Coast in 2015. So that was a big step forward. And now they're starting to fill in so, some of those gaps. And we're seeing how, how eager NHL clubs are to have their farm team nearby or at least as close as possible. And um, the Henderson experiment has been a huge success so far. And that's even with all the obstacles of this season beautiful building. I mean, I was joking around with somebody that the building they're in now temporarily for about two seasons is only 15 years old and it, it would probably be an easily a top five or top 10 building in this league. And uh, yet they're only going to be there for two years because they're moving to a new $84 million um, arena out in Henderson, which is kind of a an adjacent, one of those big type of suburbs that you see. So uh, they're going out there in two years uh, in the building just looks absolutely beautiful. And then Palm Springs is going to be over $250 million uh, with a practice facility attached. And it was the only time I've ever seen an American Hockey League arena described as uh, they're going for a mid-century architectural look. And uh, you don't generally <laughs> see that type of um, motif in American Hockey League buildings. But it just kind of goes to show you that uh, the amount of money they're spending out there, they're going to really try to uh, give it that Southern California, Palm Springs, kind of, you know, 1950s, 1960s historical look, the retro look, because they have money to spend out there and uh, they're quite willing to spend it. So uh, the league really has, I mean, it's changed dramatically. It's moved into a lot of similar types of markets. Uh, you have the Texas Stars who are in suburban Austin, uh, Iowa, uh, which Des Moines, which uh, maybe people think of as a small city, but it's actually a fairly large city. Obviously a good presence from some of the former IHL clubs as well. So they really have uh, managed to fill in the, the gaps around the, the map of this league. And um, it's not uh, the AHL that I started with in the early 2000s. It's a much, much different league in many ways, and that includes the uh, the footprint of the league. When you say a mid-century building design, I'm guessing you don't mean one like the Onondaga County War Memorial. <laughs> no, apparently. I mean, uh, so I, I've been to Palm Springs last year, and what I learned is that the city is kind of famous for that, like I would describe it as like the Jetsons that 1950s, like kind of uh, retro architecture look. Uh, it's really big in that town. And uh, you know, that's kind of the look they want to go for with that arena uh, to kind of fit into the, uh, the surrounding environment. So yeah, not an Onondaga War Memorial type of situation, much more like a uh, flashy uh, kind of, you know, neon and uh, all that type of look that you think of kind of like a like an old time uh, 1950s restaurant type of uh, look. 
at least that's how it's been explained to me. I'm not a architectural <laughs> expert, but that apparently is what they want. Wow, that's that's incredible. Like, all when right, you have two hundred fifty million dollars. You apparently can uh, can do a lot of different uh, experiments and uh, looks and uh, try some uh, things that haven't been done in a typical arena. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be about ten thousand seats. So. You know, fairly large American League arena, and then uh, certainly for the price, it's going to be a, a really, um, really pricey, uh, really kind of extravagant building. I mean, uh, I guess the closest analogy would be Lehigh Valley, and I think they were a little bit above the $100 million mark, and they're around 8,500 seats, and that build, building is beautiful. So for 250 I can only imagine what they're going to come up with in Palm Springs. All right, so in two or three seasons, Syracuse has to make the Calder Cup Finals against Palm Springs so that I can fly out there, right? I mean... I think, you, uh, think you have a good idea there. <laughs> all right, perfect. Book it. We'll be, we'll be good to go. <laughs> um, bringing it back a little bit to this particular season, you know, you, you've already mentioned the COVID protocols and, and that affecting the league, although maybe not as much as the NHL and maybe not as much as we were honestly expecting coming into this season. Have you heard anything specific from the teams in the league about how challenging these protocols are making things for them? Quite a bit. Um, And I think the biggest um, example of that would be the coaching. Um, So players right now, uh, even within uh, the team itself, um, they have to – Generally, depending on the layout of the of the dress room, uh, are you know usually in two or three different rooms, so uh, you don't have a team in in one big dress room like you typically would. So uh, that that's affected some of the cohesion. Uh, the second big thing has been uh, player coach interaction. Uh, so any sort of meetings or uh, you know they're going to sit down and discuss the power play. That all has to be done over Zoom. Uh, there's not in person meetings. So I think any of us that have uh, used Zoom or anything like that, um, obviously, you know, it's a really convenient, handy technology, but it's not quite the same either. And uh, sort of that interaction is, you know, lost a little bit of that personal touch is lost. And then captains have that same problem now because of all the um, social distancing requirements of the keeping you know, your interactions with others to a minimum. Um, If you're a captain, let's say, of the Syracuse Crunch and you're trying to integrate, you know, let's say the Florida Panthers players, it's difficult now because you can't really have those team bonding, for lack of a better word, dinners or or maybe go out after practice. The the normal socializing that that helps that – to happen. You can't do that this year. You kind of are, you know, it's almost like, hi, you wave to the guy in practice and welcome to the team. And that's about it. So um, it's, it's different. And I think, I think teams are trying to feel their way through it, figure out what at least works a little bit and go with that. And then kind of discard the, 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 uh, the ideas that don't work, but it's difficult. There's really no playbook for this type of thing. You know, hockey is obviously such a kind of a routine-oriented sport in general. So to have these players kind of taken out of their, uh, you know, their typical patterns or typical routines, 
out of their comfort zone, I think for for them is it's not insurmountable challenge, but it has complicated uh, some things for them. It's always interesting to me how kind of similar the hockey world has become to the education world. I talked about it a little bit with Jim Sorosi last week, uh, well, two weeks ago now, uh, you know, that a lot of the challenges with trying to do things over video and trying to make these connections with people and all of these these routines that you used to have, you know, it's very similar to a classroom. Classrooms mm-hmm. used to have all of these routines that have been just turned upside down by the cleaning protocols and the social distance protocols and having to go virtual and having to try to figure out how to communicate things like doing video for the hockey players, you know, over Google Meets and Zooms. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredible to me how parallel those two worlds have become. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. And, you know, I was speaking with one coach and he mentioned that typically when you say you sit down, you, you invite a player in your office and you're like, OK, we want to go over your shifts. Or we want to go over this or that, you know, and you can kind of sit down with the player. You go through it one by one by one and you get a sense of, hey, is this player actually understanding it or is he not? Is he just kind of like pretending he does or nodding his head and, you know, is he engaged? You know, all sort of those little personal cues that we all take um, are a lot harder to pick up on via uh, something like Zoom. So uh, you remember these, you know, these are regular people, uh, you know, sure, they play hockey, they, they, they coach, they, they do whatever, but uh, they're just like anybody else. And they're trying to get used to different technology and different way of doing things. And, you know, for the most part, I've heard people say, like, like thank goodness we do have this technology because imagine if this had happened 25 years ago, we would have really had a problem. So um, we do have at least sort of a happy medium that we can strike, but it, it, there is a difference. And I think for the most part, um, this year is about getting through it, uh, trying to make the best of a less than ideal situation and then hope for the best for next year. And perhaps in some ways this will um, uh, help coaches uh, maybe to find some more efficient uh, or maybe better ways. Uh, I know some coaches have enjoyed the technology. They find that uh, they're able to reach players somewhat better. Uh, You know, some of the younger players, especially who are really tech oriented. Uh, So maybe some of the, some of the better ideas that come out of this will be something that, that sticks around, but there, I think there's going to be a lot that uh, is a one and done type of uh, uh, situation as well. You clearly couldn't see it, but when you mentioned this happening 25 years ago, I just quietly put my head down on my desk and just let that thought settle for a minute because yeah. Can you imagine if we were uh, trying to do this on dial up or, Oh God. <laughs> You know, uh, all you know. I would have had to pause all my. Yeah, I would have had to. I would have had to pause all my LimeWire downloads that were slowly (laughs) poisoning my parents' computer. (laughs) Yeah, there would have been some issues. uh, This was in the '90s. I I really. uh, That's an interesting thought exercise to think how you would have handled that uh, if you were a coach and you didn't have this technology. I mean, what do you do? I don't know. I guess run photocopies maybe <laughs> i don't know yeah um, uh, i think it would be complicated though and 
know, I think certainly it would have been more difficult for the media trying to arrange some sort of uh, meeting with coaches if we didn't have Zoom. I mean, you know, nobody's too keen on anybody being in anybody else's personal space right now. So uh, I think there would have been uh, some real challenges with that. But uh, so, you know, I guess we count our blessings that we do have this technology and in a lot of ways it's pretty neat. But people are also, I think, you know, they're, cre- they're social creatures and people were meant to sort of be in, you know, social contact with each other. And we're going on a year now, uh, it'll be a year on Thursday since sort of all hell broke loose. And, uh, you know, it's a long time for a lot of people. And it's, I think a lot of people are feeling that challenge of like, okay, this, you know, we've gotten through this, but like it really, you know, starting to feel antsy, I think. To, to get out and you know you know see people and you know, have that normal human interaction when you know when, obviously when it is safe yeah yeah and and I know that the the league and the teams are really looking forward to the point where that can happen and the other day you actually tweeted out that the league has a potential obviously everything has that little asterisk next to it mm-hmm. because you know gestures at everything um date for the opening night for the 2021-22 season and friday october 15th fingers crossed hopefully we'll be ready to go circle it on your calendar i know i've uh, circled it on mine um it's about seven months it can't come soon enough um we hope um i think we all hope i know the team front offices certainly hope uh Everybody, I think the thing that's been getting through or getting them through some of these, um, you know, difficult, challenging past 12 months has been kind of having that hope on the horizon that, okay, all right, opening night, we're going to come back bad. We're going to really do it upright. We're going to have a full house. We're going to welcome everybody back. And I think that's really what they're, they're aiming for and Knock on wood, hopefully the vaccinations go well. Hopefully the virus starts to recede. All the things that we're hoping for, for a lot of reasons, uh, I think, you know, certainly also apply to a hockey standpoint where you just sort of want to make a big splash for that opening night. Uh, really do it upright. And, and because let's be honest, I mean, this would be difficult to pull off for another season. Um uh, in some ways, I'm a little surprised that the AHL managed to play this season at all. Um, certainly, the the economics of it don't work. Uh, this is not this is not a sustainable model to play without fans for the most part. To play without uh, any sort of uh, you know you know normal sponsorships, all the typical things that, that make the hockey business go um, are not there this year. Or at least not there to the same extent. So. You can maybe muddle through for a year or really, in this case, half a, half a season. But come next October, you really do need it to be back and to come back strong. So uh, that's what everyone's hoping for. Uh, that's why I put that asterisk there. And, you know, you really hope that it comes to fruition. But, um, you know, right now it looks like the league is kind of full speed ahead. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're going to plan for next year until somebody tells them not to. And uh, they're just going to really kind of cross their fingers and hope for the best, which I think we're all doing right now. 
That date does seem a little bit late into October, just based on what the league usually does. Usually, Mm -hmm. I think it's around like the 9th or the 10th or something like that. Do you think that kind of reflects the, I mean, the American Hockey League right now, the regular season isn't ending until what, mid-May-ish? Yes. Do you think that, is that some reflection of that? And then whatever the NHL is going to do, which I honestly haven't paid any attention to because (laughs) paying attention to the American Hockey League is enough right now. Sure. So the NHL, as of now, is sort of scheduled to go into early July, middle-ish July. Then you have the draft, you have free agency. So free agency is uh, July 28th right now um, as of this moment. Uh, so I think that they just want to buy themselves an extra week or so. You know, just trying to try to build in some extra time just in case for some reason this NHL season runs a little bit late. Also, just to buy AHL front offices a, uh, a little bit of extra time for planning. Remember, a lot of these teams uh, haven't had their front office back. Uh, in some cases, they'll have to hire new staff, uh, or in other cases, you're just bringing people back. And and you know, some of the some of these jobs have been unfilled for months now, and there's going to be some catch up time that's required. So um, I think they want to buy as much time as they can, and I. I think we also know that early season attendance in the AHL is not great to start with. So the more you can kind of push that date back as far as possible, I don't think they mind that too much. Um, and they just want to, they want to play. I mean, they need, they desperately need teams to have buildings filled next year, you know, jerseys being sold, uh, ads on the boards, all the things that make hockey work. They need that. And I think everyone is just uh, really kind of hoping against hope right now that uh, all that can happen. And, uh, you know, hopefully for the league's sake uh, that everything can go off without a hitch. God, I know my fingers are crossed 100 <laughs> percent. I can't do this for another another year. I miss it. Yeah, I mean, all the normal routines. I mean, you know, going to games this year has all be honest it's been a really strange experience um you walk into a building and the building's empty or the thing that really grabbed me kind of was they play the national anthem which is not a singer this year it's just a recording um and the, the song finishes and there's just not really a reaction it's just quiet you hear the players start to skate around. Whereas typically you would hear the national anthem and then at the end everyone applauds and da-da-da. And you don't hear that this year. So it's like your ears kind of trained to hear that applause at the end and it's not there. And for me, that was kind of what was like really reminding me like, oh, wow, this is this is different. This isn't the quite the same environment. Uh, um, or, you know, when there's a goal and the visiting team scores – there's no reaction from the fans. There's no booing. There's no anything. It's just, well, they scored. And it's just different. So I think the sooner we can get through all this, I think we'll all be happier. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure how this season would go. I was I was on the fence if they would even play, to be honest. Looking back, I think it's probably for the best that they did play in the sense that they're at least getting back into the routine of things. And, um, you know, not even from a hockey standpoint, but just simply uh, the front office standpoint. Uh, you know, they had to kind of get 
back into the swing of uh, putting on a game night presentation. Uh, PR people, uh, I know broadcasters, were you know, a few of them told me, like, it was really difficult to come back. You haven't done this for a year, and now all of a sudden you're on the air and you're trying to you know, sound <laughs> like a professional broadcaster. And so for them, I think they've appreciated that opportunity to uh, kind of get back into the swing of things. Just everybody has been so desperate for any semblance of normalcy that I think they're just kind of grabbing onto what they can find. And, uh, but it is different. There's no, no question about it. If we zero in on Syracuse for a second, you know, whether it's the different atmosphere that's affecting things, whether it's the dual affiliation, you know, the crunch season has not exactly gotten off to the start that I think a lot of people kind of anticipated it would, I think that considering the dual affiliation, considering the young talent that was supposed to come into the Crunch's roster, it, it was expected that they were going to be a little bit stronger out of the gate than they have been. You know, from what you have seen and observed, and I know you've talked to Coach Ben Grew a couple of times, what what have you seen going on that can kind of speak to maybe something as to why this kind of inconsistency is being seen? Ooh. Well, if I had the answers, uh, I'm sure Ben would be all ears. But I think the first and most obvious reason is that Florida dual affiliation and nothing against Florida. Um, those players, quality players, they come in, but but you are trying to mesh two different teams, two different cultures, um, two different systems, two just, you name it. And it's a little bit different. And so I think that's that's been a big challenge for the crunch. Um, they certainly haven't had any favors in terms of uh, player call-ups and, you know, you know, you lose a uh, Ross Colton, you lost uh, Alex Barry Berlay right off the bat, pretty much after they, they had that hot start, they get called up. Uh, so that kind of throws things off into a little bit of disarray. So obviously the special teams have not been good bottom third for both of them uh, as of the time we're uh, recording here. So it's, it's a team that just doesn't seem like it necessarily fits together quite yet. And and normally you would have that, that first month, even two months sometimes in this league. And we've seen that with crunch teams in the past that you really struggle in that first six weeks or so. And then they hit their stride and they go on a big tear. And that, that happened a few times now with that season being compressed, you don't really have that opportunity to, uh, kind of find your footing a little bit and get into that groove. So, so that's, that's a big issue there. And I think the other thing too, is with the way the schedule is, they're only playing three other clubs. So if one of those teams happens to match up well with you or happens to have your number um, for one reason or another, and you're playing them every other game, basically, it, I mean, that's just a difficult matchup. And I think that's to some extent the case for, for, Syracuse, they're going up against Rochester. I don't think that mat- that matchup necessarily favors the Crunch you know, as much as maybe some other matchups would. So you're seeing that same team over and over and over again. And if they're kind of, uh, if they have your number, that can just be, that can be a difficult situation to overcome, especially when you're playing them tonight. And then again, you know, in three days after that. So you don't even have much time to really kind of, uh, you know, get some confidence back, maybe playing some other clubs. So, it's been a difficult 
road. There's no question for the crunch. It's definitely not your typical Syracuse crunch season. It, it doesn't really seem to have that same juice in terms of what's on the roster. Uh, and I do, I think coach Ben grew is definitely, he's definitely feeling some challenges here with, with getting this group to, to play as one. Um, and to kind of be one cohesive unit. And they've, they've talked about when you're here, you're not a Florida player, you're, you're not a Tampa pay, player, you're a Syracuse crunch player. And, and and that's great. And that, you know, I certainly think that's their goal, but that's easier said than done. And it's easier said than done to get players to buy in and to all kind of start pulling the rope in the same direction. So uh, it's just, it's been one of those seasons where they've been kind of fighting it from the start, other than that uh, game against Utica, that 6-1 win, uh, where it just seems like hasn't the pieces haven't quite fit together yet, and I think that's where, where they're really finding, the, finding that difficulty. Even though we knew going into the season that the schedule was going to be super condensed and very, very minimal in terms of compo- you know um, people that the crunch was playing, it's funny, I didn't think of that as one of the major storylines that could affect how the season was going. But the way you put it like that, that really sort of makes sense that when you're seeing these teams so often over such a short period of time, even though like usually Syracuse plays Utica 12 times a season, Mm -hmm. plays Rochester 10 times a season, you know, those numbers aren't necessarily strange or different. But this time they're playing them February to May instead of October to April. Exactly. And so if you know, say you, you play Utica last night and they, they beat you and, you know, they're kind of in your head and it, we've seen that even in playoffs, this is probably the closest analogy where uh, uh, one team gets in the other team's head. Maybe a goalie really starts to kind of mess with the other team's head and they lose a lot of their confidence. They lose a lot of their kind of their swagger. And before you know it, they lose the series. And we're sort of seeing that play out with the regular season, if you can call it that. And so it's – we're seeing a lot of things, I think, right now that we've never seen before. There's really no precedent to, to go on. Um, you know, and I think that applies to coaches. And, and they don't necessarily know how to handle this, this setup either uh, where – what do you do if, if you happen to have an opponent that you play every other game, essentially, and they just have your number for one reason or another? Uh, um, I'm sure if, if I could figure out the answers, uh, yeah, Ben Grew would be uh, more than happy to hear them. But uh, um, I don't necessarily know if the answers are going to be very easy to find. Uh, and I, I certainly wouldn't claim to have them. Something that might make this all slightly more complicated is the AHL-ECHL partnership where the ECHL seems really super committed to having their playoffs be as normal as they can be, where the AHL really isn't. So I had a question from um, Matt Harding, who's actually my boss over at the Sinbin, so I figured I better ask his question because I don't want to get in trouble. And uh, he was wondering if you have heard anything or do you think that AHL players who are eligible for the ECHL postseason, do you think AHL teams will send them down for their ECHL's 
you know, the playoff run down there? Or do you think they're just going to allow the players to just kind of pack it up and go home and begin their off-scenes in training so that they can be ready to turn it around in October? I think it will depend kind of a team-by-team basis. Uh, some definitely, I think, will we'll push that pretty hard. We want you to go down. Remember, there's kind of that that pressure, whether it's implicit or explicit. Uh, do you want to be the guy that says no and just, well, I'm going to go home for the summer? That may not go over well with, with management. So I think you do see some players that are, they kind of feel a little bit, well, I better do what I'm supposed to do here. You know, they're not saying I have to go, but – they're not not saying I have to go either. You know what I mean? So uh, I think there's a little bit of that. I think uh, it will depend. But if you're a young player and you're you're on that AHL, ECHL bubble to start with, you're probably not feeling overly secure right now to start with. So um, you may well just decide like, hey, I better go down there and better play in the playoffs. And remember, too. And there are some guys that, you know, I've had players say, I will, I'll play for free this year. They just want to play. I mean, that's how some of them are. I mean, I think, you know, we, we all know those players that uh, you're going to have to drag them away from hockey, kicking and screaming because, I mean, they're just so passionate about playing that um, they'll play anytime, anywhere, any place, really, for, for anything. Uh, I think for other players, it's going to be a little bit of a different equation. There's family considerations as well. Uh, a lot of players right now, they don't have their family with them. So uh, come May, mid-May, that's going to be three plus months. A lot of them will be without seeing their family. So I think that comes into play. So I really do think it's going to kind of be a team by team, even player by player decision as to what to do and you know, how long, uh, you know, how long that decision will take. There's definitely, you know, a lot of that insecurity among the players. We talked about it at the start of this season because there were a lot of veterans that couldn't find jobs. And then going into next season, it just seems like there's a lot of guys that don't exactly know where they're going to be and how everything is going to shake out. One guy who does know what his future holds for him, or at least, you know, that we can see, is Syracuse forward Daniel Walcott. The Lightning announced today that they have signed him to another contract. Walcott's currently injured right now, so I'm sure that this little bit of security has really kind of helped him, you know, especially it's a two-year contract, which was a little surprising to me, just because the Lightning hasn't really been giving him two-year contracts as of late. I think they've been sticking with kind of that one year, we'll see where this goes. So, you know, Walcott is one of the purest community guys I think Syracuse has ever had. And, you know, this is coming from one of Mike Angelitas's biggest fans. So to say that, I really do. He's been in Syracuse since 2015. He owns a home in the Syracuse community, which is practically unheard of at the mm-hmm. AHL level. He's really kind of a cement that holds it all together. How important are those types of guys to AHL rosters and AHL communities? I think they're everything. I mean, when you think, well, I mean, Let's start from a hockey standpoint. You have to have some cohesion. You have to have a guy like Daniel Walcott. Perhaps the NHL is not in his future at this point, uh, although you, know, you never know either, so I hate to rule, rule that out for any player. Um, but 
he's obviously had some injury issues in the last couple of years. He did manage to stay healthy last year, and then but then the season got cut short. So, but for a player like that that can impart some wisdom, I mean, especially now when we're talking about a season where you have 18, 19 year olds who, frankly, are just barely out of high school. You need kind of that uh, that older brother uh, uh, presence, right? Like someone that can kind of take a player, you know, aside and, and you know, if he's having a rough day, just you know, cheer him up. The, all those little things that that uh, you know really are just normal human interactions also apply in the hockey world. Uh, and you know, somebody that can kind of be a uh, sounding board is is huge. And that, I mean the. Syracuse and Tampa, that that affiliation has always put a, a real premium on that uh, type of player, uh, and you need to have the, those kind of blue guys, as they call them, uh, to kind of hold things together, especially when things go a little bit off track. So, a Daniel Walcott from that standpoint is great, and certainly from a community slash fan standpoint, somebody that's that invested into the into the market, into the community. Um, Remember, this is a business. This is about getting people to come out to the games, uh, sometimes on, on a Wednesday night in January when the weather's not great. Any way that you can build that connection between the team, the players, the fan base, uh, local charities, whatever the case may be, is just that one much more of a step forward. Uh, you know, it solidifies the crunch just that little bit more in the community, makes it a little bit more part of, uh, uh, you know, of a connection for people. I mean, people are, are craving that type of um, bond with their team. And it's not just about hockey games. It's about life. It's about, uh, you know, being proud of their team, being proud of what their team represents, being proud of the, of the causes that their team promotes. Having a player like that where you don't have to really ask him, he just does it, you know, he, he eagerly embraces that opportunity to work in the community, I think it's huge. And, uh, you know, full credit to Daniel Walcott. He's, he's had some tough breaks in his career. He's not always had um, the easiest road, especially recently. But um, he's a guy that really gets it and really embraces, a lot like a Mike McKenna, uh, embraces the opportunity that he has here uh, and isn't just somebody that's kind of like, you know, one foot out the door. I can't wait till I get the NHL and, you know, I don't really want to be here. And, and I just think it's so, it's so important. And I, I, apparently the Tampa Bay lightning agree with that. That, yeah, that was beautifully put. I couldn't have put it better myself. That was amazing. Thank you. This league has some special players in it for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we, we so often hear about the guys who don't want to be down there and like, you know, oh, they, it's mumbling, grumbling, uh, why am I here? I should be in the NHL. Everybody wants to be in the NHL yesterday. Well, remember for a lot of guys, I think they have that fire that's still there. They want to be in the NHL, but they're also realistic and they're also, I think, appreciative of the opportunity they have in this league. And this is a this is a good league. This is a good operation. This is one step below the NHL. Um, you're in lots of, you know, good markets, good cities. Uh, there's a lot to like about it if you're a player here. Uh, and I think a guy like Daniel Walcott that gets that, you know, hey, I have a pretty good situation here. I want to be here. I think it works for both sides. And I think that's what it's really neat. And, you know, it's it's something that used to be more common in this league. And now as, you know, the veteran rule and some of the other things that have, I think, kind of chipped away at that. 
but you still do see examples like that uh, with players like him. And I just think it's it's really cool. Yeah, the loss of those players is is a conversation we could turn a whole podcast into because <laughs> they're those were usually my favorites as as people are well aware. So yeah, that that's definitely it's a boon whenever you can find these guys. I'll say that this for players like Walcott, you know, they sell as many tickets and uh, uh, jerseys and things of that nature really is like, you know, maybe a player that goes out there and scores 35 goals because, you know, most fans in this league are fairly casual, um, let's be honest, and maybe they recognize three or four players from the team. and but So when you have a guy that's kind of a, a – a consistent presence there, you know, carries over from one year to the next. I think that just really brings in a lot of casual fans and uh, makes them feel like, okay, I'm still kind of up on the team. You know, um, fans, I don't think necessarily come to watch player development. They come to, they come to connect with their team. They come to connect with players. Uh, they like to see goals. They like to see hits. They like to see wins and all that, but they also need to have that connection. And, uh, you know, if you look at some of the strongest markets, in the league over the years, they all had that one thing in common. They they had they had those players that really bought into the into the AHL club and and into the community. And you know maybe your Jody Gage in Rochester or you know, guys like that. Uh, Syracuse has had their guys over the years as well. Um, it, it really I think goes a long way to, towards cementing that bond that you have with the fan base. And that's why the Crunch. That's why obviously the Amherst, Hershey. Markets like that have always done really well because they, they, they put a premium on that. Yeah, you know this league, you know these teams, you know, you you watch and, and and you can communicate these things really well. So thank you so much for coming on. Before I, before I say uh, good night, why don't you go ahead and just tell everybody where they can find you? And I, I'm sure that nobody listening to this, you know, isn't already following you. But just in case, why don't you tell them where they can find you? Well, I have uh, my column at NHL.com, uh, the NHL Notebook. It's uh, you go around the league and kind of uh, really try to bring fans up to speed, especially the casual fan that's not necessarily – up on everything happening around the league. I also have the Around the A podcast. Uh, I do it with David Foote from the Belleville Senators radio team. Uh, every week we're on the air with that. Uh, we go everywhere, you know, whether San Diego or Laval or Syracuse, you name it. Uh, we try to talk to a mix of uh, players, coaches, uh, GMs, you name it. Um, I find with this league, there's always something to discuss. Um, you know, there's never a shortage of topics, especially this year. Uh, especially the past 12 months. Um, so we, we keep pretty busy with that. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fun um, fun experience to kind of get into the podcast world, to get into kind of the uh, non-written word world. Um, so it's been, it's been neat. And then as far as social media, I'm on Twitter um, a lot, you know, probably more than is healthy, uh, at P. Williams AHL, um, just like the league. Uh, so yeah, if you have any questions, any, um, anything you want to know about the American hockey league, if I don't have the answer, I'll certainly, uh, try to find it out for you and you can hit me up there. I think that will do it for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to leave me any feedback either on my personal Twitter at Allovimo, A-L-L-O-V-I-M-O 
or over at Sinbin Crunch, at S-I-N-B-I-N Crunch, C-R-U-N-C-H. I would also like to thank the artists that have provided our royalty-free tracks. The first is Purple Planet Music. They have provided the music for our intro, outro, and segment music. The second is Kevin McLeod. He has provided the music that you hear underneath my voice right now. Let's keep taking care of each other out there in Crunchland. Have a great week or two. See you next time.